morning, good morning. Hello, welcome, good morning. Um, we're going we're gonna to pull back in, uh, if we can, and jump into some teaching time. My name is Wally, if I have not met you yet, uh, so I'm thrilled to be with you all. Uh, I have the privilege of being the teaching pastor here for Walker Harbor, and I am excited to um, continue our conversation that we have been in for quite some time. And if you're new or newer with us, you won't miss a beat, uh, is my hope anyways, um, as, as we sink in. We have spent, beginning last year, uh, it was what we would call, understandably, like church calendar, if you will, Advent season. So just before December, we started walking through the gospel or the book uh, of Jesus' life according to a young Jewish man named Matthew. So if you're familiar at all with the Bible, it's the first book or letter in the New Testament uh, called Matthew. And so we've been going through it, uh, and we uh, are, are going to wrap up sometime likely at the end of this year. Um, possibly it might leak into the new year, but I don't, I don't think so. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but we've been going through it so that we could just center ourselves, walk with Jesus through the life of Jesus, and all of that time... Uh, up until two weeks ago, we had been basically looking at three years of Jesus' life all in that time. And then now for the remainder of this year, we will be situated basically for about three months, spending uh, our time in like the last week of Jesus' life. And so we went relatively um, quickly and now we're going to, in some ways, get to slow down because there is a lot of activity, a lot of things that take place in the, in the life of Jesus in that last week. Uh, and then we'll look at um, kind of post-resurrection, which even that language for someone who might not be familiar, like post what and the what. Um, so, but we'll look at some of that as well. It'll be great. So if um, you're used to at Christmas time, you would talk about the birth of Jesus. We'll actually be heading and spending Christmas talking about the death of Jesus and, and, and beyond because it's all tied together and it's a really fun way of doing that. So uh, we think that will be great uh, as, as we kind of sink in. So thrilled for that. Uh, we, though, in the last couple of weeks, we break down the Matthew into little sub-themes. Because all throughout Matthew, there are these themes that take place in which Jesus is living his life that you can kind of hunker down into. And so this uh, mini-theme, if you will, that we've been in is on power and authority. Because at this point, Jesus has lived in a certain way. He's taught. He's done all these things, which then begins to raise questions for uh, the power and authority of his world at that time, first century, they begin to go, wait a minute, you're doing something very different than the power and authority structures that we have in place. You seem to be saying something or are saying something very different. And so now these worlds are colliding. So we're looking at now Jesus speaking, living a new kind of power and authority, saying something, and these now power and authority systems are going, uh, we've got some questions, mister. Uh, and so if you are someone who is not a fan of tension or confrontation, whew, then last week you were maybe sweating. Uh, and uh, this week we're going to lean in a bit further, but maybe you're someone who's like, oh, I love a good confrontation. I put those movies on where it's like, you know, worlds collide kind of thing, and oh, here we go. Then this morning would be one of those mornings where you're like, grab some popcorn and lean in because, oh, this is going to be a good time. So that's kind of where we'll be. Um, but to, to get into, just real quick before we pray, uh, last week what we were, the, that confrontation was Jesus had spent a bunch of time in the Galilee region, northern Israel. He's now moved down into Jerusalem, kind of the center uh, of religion for Israel anyways. And then he marched into the temple last week and began to literally as it was, flip some tables over, knock some stuff around, stuff, 
to make a guerrilla theater style scene. He did something very like guerrilla theater. I'm making a scene to bring attention to the fact that this system has gone off course. This system has done more harm than good, and I'm going to show that. He did that, then he left and went to a town called Bethany, spent the night, came back the next morning on his way into Jerusalem, into, he goes by a fig tree, fig tree, and he's like, I'm hungry. Walks up to the fig tree, said, there's no fruit on it, no figs, and he says, it's all dried up, and he goes, you're cursed, may you never produce fruit again, and we go, well, that's weird. But the whole point was fig, the word fig, uh, ta'anim in Hebrew, it was what the symbol or picture was for the religious leaders of that time. The Jewish leadership were known as figs. So again, all he is doing is, let me give you a different picture. Jesus is walking toward the White House and he sees an elephant and a donkey and he says, you no longer work, you will no, you will no longer function anymore, you are all done. Are you with me? That's what Jesus does walking up and sees a fig tree and says, that system is dried up, it's broken, and it needs to go away. Which might upset some people. So this is what Jesus does. And so you can see that tension. Now, those leaders of that system, the Jewish teachers, so you have the teachers of the law, that system, they go, we, we need to sit down with him. And have some questions. So that's where we'll be today. So I'd like to pause, we'll pray, and then we'll sink into that confrontation. Gracious God, we bless you for the invitation, the opportunity to gather together as a community. That we can sit together, we can uh, listen to the way of your life, Jesus how you lived, how you taught, how you were in the world, how you loved people, and what that teaches us in how we live, how we love, how we use our power and authority, our influence. You teach us so well. So may we, this group of people, may we even here today and those listening, may we have ears to hear, which is to say, may we have hearts that hear and understand and make way for you to transform, reform, make anew our hearts that we may live as good news in a world that needs good news. So may now the posture and meditation of my heart, the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Um, so in this interaction, what we're going to do is we have these religious leaders that have approached Jesus and their, their question well, essentially, you, you've called out this system and said it's broken. We lead this system. So they go up to him and they basically ask, what and who gives you the right to act and speak as you're doing? What makes you think you can do this? And who gave you permission to do this? And getting at that question then will eventually lead us into asking a question for us today is how do we expend the vast majority of our energy? How do we expend our energy? What do we expend our energy on? And who is that good news for? So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to be in uh, Matthew, as we would understand Matthew chapter 21, and uh, we'll begin and we'll have everything on the screen uh, words-wise for you so we can follow along. And we're going to begin our giddy-up in verse 23. So 21, 23 to 27. Jesus did what? He entered where? The temple courts. So we'll get there. But Jesus returns. He goes back into the temple courts. And while he was teaching, so now he's in the temple courts teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people, Jewish people, came to him by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, 
I will also ask you one question. I'm not just going to answer. I've got a question for you because that's what a good rabbi does, and so he does that. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? It, now, real quick, and we'll get into it. He's speaking of John baptized Jesus, and we'll get there. He's asking that, not where did John get baptized. John was baptizing people, and he baptized me. Where did that come from? Was it from heaven, or was it of human origin? Now, real quick, um, just so we get our bearings, uh, next picture. Uh, is, so here's a model of the temple in Jerusalem. So entering the courts, he comes back in, and you have many layers to the temple system. But Jesus is in probably the Gentile court, as we would understand it. That's this outer court called the Gentile courts. Anyone can kind of be up in that situation. Then as you get further in, you have the women's court, Jewish women only. Then you have where only the men of Israel can go in another step further. Then you go in and these priests and leaders, it'd be only a section in which they could go in. Then you get to a place where only the practicing priests of that time could go in. Then you have where only the high priest, one, can go into the Holy of Holies, and that can only be once a year. So Jesus is in the outer court teaching so all can hear, so he's there, and now the religious leaders come to him, and they, we have some questions for you. And they ask him these questions, and then it continues this way. So Jesus says, they discussed it among themselves. He asked them, there's your question. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? Because they didn't believe John. But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. All these people think John's a prophet, so if we just go, ah, it's a human thing, we're in trouble. So they answer Jesus, we don't know. Uh, we're just going to go with we don't know. So it was way back in chapter 3 of Matthew, we are introduced to this guy named John, often known as the baptizer. We hear that. He's also Jesus' cousin. But we read how John's life and ministry, if you were, are about preparing the way for the one who is to come. He, is kind of, he was known as the last prophet before the one who will come, the Messiah is how they would understand it, has come. So Jesus is referencing that because he's like, who, who do you say John is? Because if he is, as the people understand him, to be that last prophet, then we know who I am and we know where my authority. So he's asking that. So the language then and imagery of that baptism that took place, we got into it back then. You can go back and listen to it wherever that was. Back probably February, maybe, uh, would be my guess. They understand John to be the final prophet who prepares the way. And around that baptism, there was imagery and symbolism that says, this is one way to communicate Jesus is the one who is to come to bring about a new creation. He will embody it, and he will launch a new creation right in the midst of this old one. It's one way of saying this is the anticipated Christ. Which is then getting to what the real question that the religious leaders wanted to ask Jesus. Do you think you are the Messiah? That's what they want to ask him, but they kind of, maybe you know this. Well, we can't just ask directly, so we'll dance around it. We'll ask some other things, because we can't just say right to it. So they some, ask some other things, and they're playing games a little bit. Because they know if that's true, there's only one person, if you will, that would have the authority to walk in the temple and say what Jesus has said, act as Jesus has acted, and that one who is above the temple, if you will, who has that kind of authority is the Messiah. So they're like, we've got questions and we want you to answer. Is that true? They don't ask them outright, but they essentially begin in this conversation, listen, you come here from the region of kind of podunk Galilee, and you start flipping tables over, and you start saying the things you're saying and calling out the system the way you're calling out, what gives you the right? Who gives you permission to behave like this? And his response is such a teacher. Jesus knows arguing and lecturing them will not move them or change their mind. 
So G Jesus simply asked them a question. Well, let me ask you a question to reframe some things. And he essentially says, is John a prophet as the masses believe him to be? Or is John just some guy performing religious rituals in a river so we can rent a nearby pavilion, grill some fish, and, ha and share in Aunt Lucy's uh, famous falafel? Is that what's happening, or is it something more? They, they freeze. They don't know what to do because they're like, we're stuck, so they just say, we don't know. Jesus doesn't respond with a straight answer to them. They have shown they won't believe him. Think of this situation. You're talking and you get to a point you're going, I don't think there's anything I can say with data, facts, that are going to change their mind. They're clear on where they stand. So his response is a teacher. This is a how Jesus responds teaches us, hopefully. So he says, fine, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You say you don't know? Nah, I'm not saying either. I mean, it's, that's funny. I, I find that funny. But I would say it this way. Why waste my energy and my explanation when you refuse to hear anything outside of your narrative? Why would I keep talking and talking and say things when you have a narrative you've shown, you've proven, you keep communicating that you will hear nothing outside of your narrative? So, eh. So how he responds, though, here's the thing. Typically, typically there would be one of the things, well, keep going and arguing or I'll just walk away. Jesus does neither of those. But he does do something, which I think is really helpful because so we know, friends, right? What's right around the corner? We've got some major holidays coming up, right? Which means family gatherings where Uncle Larry or brother-in-law Fred start parroting their favorite news channel. And even if someone provides the most comprehensive facts that completely unravel the monologue, they will simply turn up the volume and click repeat on their slanted sound bites, right? So this, in how Jesus responds, I think is such a teacher for these moments. Because in the conversation with the religious leaders, Jesus is kind of in that scenario. So typically it's either argue, 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 or I'll just shut down and walk away. Jesus chooses a third way. Jesus tells stories. We call them parables, but he's going to launch in and, and tell three stories. And I find this beautiful because what we can learn, and here's how I would say it, because when you don't do like just data, facts, if you will, and have that kind of linear conversation, story, stories go around the head to transpose the heart. They've studied story, and when you start and do a story, real story, or a made-up story, but either way, when you begin to tell a story, it goes around the head, and it begins to work on the heart. It invites the heart to participate, so you invite them to engage in this on multiple levels. Are you with me? So then, for this section, this section that we're in, we need to lean in, and it's great that we're gathered. We lean in because it's almost like campfire time, and we're going to get lost in story time with Jesus. But it's then not just what Jesus says, but it's how he says it as in the form. He's going to tell stories, which, by the way, is how we got the scriptures is they just told stories and stories and stories, and it wasn't until years and years, hundreds of years later, that they wrote them down. But it was constantly family time, uh, campfire time, tell these stories. So in order for us to get lost in story time, we need a world-renowned storytelling person. So if you would, please welcome our friend, Ruth Jones, to come. Now... This is Ruth, if you have not met her, but really globally, she's known as Miss Ruth. 
storyteller extraordinaire. So it's great. Thanks, Ruth, for hanging out. Happy to be here. Yes. So what she will help us immerse into story time with Jesus. So what Jesus knows is logic and reason have been drowned in the darkened hearts of these religious leaders. Logic, reason, gone. So instead of debate or argument, Jesus says this. Once upon a time, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first one and said, now then, my boy, off you go and do a day's work in the vineyard. Hmm, don't want to, replied the son. But afterward, he thought better of it and he went. He went to the other son and said the same thing. Certainly, master, he said, but he didn't go. So which of the two did what his father wanted? Before we get into their answer, what's yours? Who would you say did what the father wanted? Who did what the father wanted? You can, you can just hold it there. You can have your answer. Who did what the Father wanted. It's a simple exercise, what Jesus has done here, of placing oneself, placing his audience in the story, or it's say, would you consider the characters in the story? Now then, we can decide what is the best path forward. Because you're in this story. Who, who did what the Father asked? It, it engages an entire different, a different dynamic of our being. We're, by being in this. Because story can transpose the heart. Now, on to the religious leader's response. The first, they answered. Is that what you said? The first, they answered, which is great because they verbally gave the correct answer. The first son said, I don't want to do this. But then he thinks better of it and ends up doing what the father asked him to do. Apparently what he needed is a little space, a little time to ruminate on it. And then he realized, but it is the best thing to do. So he does it. And that was, that's the right answer. Now what Jesus does here is he's going to catapult the religious leaders into the story and talk about how this scenario that he just painted, you actually have had that scenario in place and let's talk about how it actually played out in your lives. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus said to them, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into God's kingdom ahead of you. Oh, you, uh, yes, John came to you in accordance with God's righteous covenant plan, and you didn't believe him when John came about. But the tax collectors and prostitutes now in the life, I've gone around and talked with them, they did believe him. But when you saw them believing, you didn't think better of it afterward and believe him. Awesome. And whoa, wow, ouch. Jesus doesn't want to miss, have them miss the point. You all chose not to believe. Then you saw other people, but full stop on that. Correction, not just other people. The least of these, the looked down on, the socially cast off, the social, socially trampled on, the socially marginalized, those people, in fact, are the ones that did listen and they did believe. That's who also believed. You sat and watched that take place and you still crossed your arms and your pride, your selfishness, your arrogance inflated your dissipated heart. Feeling a little tension in the conversation. Now then, he doesn't just go, okay, now he sits back, we let that so, then we have more. Listen to another parable. Once upon a time, there was a householder who planted a vineyard 
built a wall for it, dug out a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he rented it out to tenant farmers and went away on a journey. When harvest time arrived, he sent his slaves to the farmers to collect his produce. The farmers seized his slaves. They beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than before, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But the farmers saw the son. This fellow's the heir, they said among themselves. Come on, let's kill him, and then we can take over the property. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now then, when the vineyard owner returns, what will he do to those farmers? He'll kill them brutally, those wretches, they said. And he'll lease the vineyard to other farmers who will give him the produce at the right time. He'll kill them brutally, those wretches. That was their answer. He asked, what do you think that, that's going to happen? Oh, we think this is what should happen, is how they respond. So I'm guessing that they have not put themselves in the story yet, correct? They, well, I, I doubt it. Then, Jesus says, did you never read what the Bible said, says, said Jesus to them? Now, we looked at that last week that Jesus says, have you not read the Bible? Who are these people? They're the religious leaders. They are the teachers of Torah. They are the teachers of the Hebrew scriptures. They are the teachers of the Bible at that time. Have you not read? Oh, ouch. The stone the builders threw away is now atop the corner. It's from the Lord, all this, they say, and we looked on and wondered. Have you not read that, where the, the stone that, like, that's supposed to be the foundation of everything, uh, they actually rejected that stone? So then, let me tell you this. God's kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the goods. Anyone who falls on the stone will be smashed to pieces, and anyone it falls on will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was talking about them. Good for you. They came around. They tried to do what, though? Man. But they were afraid of the crowds. Oh, man, the crowds love him because so, they regard him as a prophet. Ooh, we're kind of stuck. They realize their place in the story, but are still clinging to their pride and religious rightness to the detriment of their hearts. Rather than hear and do what is said, they choose to get rid of the one who can fix the heart. Uh, I don't like what you're saying, and so rather than even give it any semblance of listening, and by the way, when I say hear or do, that word is shema in the Hebrew. So when we say the Shema, hear, O Israel, love God, love your neighbor, the word Shema means to hear and obey or hear and do. What they're choosing not then is that. We will not hear and obey. Instead, we don't like what you say. We don't like what that does to our hearts. We don't like the way that makes us feel. We are getting rid of him. Can we arrest him? What can we do to get him out of here because we will not rethink this? So, Jesus pauses, and he gives story one more shot. Jesus spoke to them once again in parables. The kingdom of heaven, he said, is like a king who made a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call the invited guests to the wedding, and they didn't want to come. Again, he sent other servants with these instructions. Say to the guests, look, I've got my dinner ready. My bulls and fatted calves have been killed. Everything is prepared. Come to the wedding. But they didn't take any notice. They went off, one to his own farm, another to see his business. The others laid hands on his servants, abused them, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his soldiers to destroy those murderers and burn down their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, 
but the guests didn't deserve it. So go to the roads leading out of town and invite everyone you find to the wedding. The servants went off into the streets and rounded up everyone they found, bad and good alike. And the wedding was filled with partygoers. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who wasn't wearing a wedding suit. My friend, he said to him, how did you get in here without wearing a wedding suit? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, tie him up, hands and feet, and throw him into the darkness outside where people weep and grind their teeth. Many are called, you see, but few are chosen. Who's ready for soup? Yeah, um, if you would, would you please uh, thank Miss Ruth uh, for reading, thank you. That's heavy. Um, I want to just quickly wade in. I want to highlight some of the Hebrew scriptures that, that is kind of dancing within these stories that Jesus is telling, and very quickly, and then point to the very clear challenge that Jesus is putting to these religious leaders and to the religious establishment. And then uh, we're going to see what that looks like for you and I today. Um, so in the second story that Jesus told about the vineyard tenants, that whole piece about the builders rejecting the cornerstone, Jesus is referencing Psalm, the song 118, verses 22 to 23. The psalmist is speaking of the power and salvation of the divine. But the psalmist notes that the divine recognizes that there are those who were called from the very beginning who have chosen to reject the very one who is the foundation of this whole kingdom of heaven building project. So he's saying there will be people that will reject the very foundation of this. Then Jesus is also hinting that the word is remez, is how the Hebrew people would understand it. Remez means I'm hinting back when I'm saying this, it would make you think of this old scripture. Isaiah the prophet, he's highlighting Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. See if this sounds at all familiar. We'll read it together. Uh, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Is this starting to sound familiar? Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for what? Justice but saw bloodshed. For what? But heard cries of distress. Does that sound familiar, that story? The prophet Isaiah had said this to the Hebrew people. The path has been laid out for you. The way has been paved. Would you follow this way? Live this way. If you do not, it will be taken from you. You will go into exile in Babylon. That happened. And he's saying, see what's happened and why that is, is because you have not clothed yourself and lived by the way of justice and righteousness. So Jesus launches into this, but instead of just saying, let me pull up the documents, let me pull up the facts and the survey, whatever, he says, let me tell you a story. 
that just echoes the Hebrew prophets and the songs of old that should be a part of our people that are about justice and righteousness. Because Jesus knows stories can, tra can transpose the heart. But the religious leaders double down on their pride and self-serving system. This system is our system. We benefit really well from it. We really love this system. You're saying it's broken, but we love it. I know, but can you rethink it? No, I, that would take ch ch change, that swear word. Rethinking, open-mindedness, open-heartedness. That sounds like a lot of work. So Jesus continues on the path the divine has placed before them all. Jesus is doing this. What all the people were always called to do is what he's highlighting. What the people were from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, here is how you are to live. You are to cultivate and steward goodness. Tov is the word. Becoming is what that means. Goodness or becoming. Creation is becoming. Will you steward it forward? They choose selfishness. Hey, Noah, Noah, I want to restart. Will you steward goodness forward? Noah chooses selfishness. Then we get to Abram. Abram, Genesis chapter 12, 1 and 3. Here we go. It does this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Ready? Leave the old story, Abram, and we're going to start a new story. I need you to go and start a new story. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will what? Be a blessing. That's why you're being blessed. You will be a blessing. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And who? Who? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples. This is the divine plan from the very beginning, which raises a question about how do you understand that word blessing? Blessing is dynamic, not static, which means it's never intended to be stuck, to be exclusive for one's own empire building. Blessing moves in and through one and on to the other, eventually to all peoples on earth. Are you with me? That's how blessing moves. It's dynamic, which is exactly what Jesus says he is going to do, beginning with those who have been left out, looked down on, shoved in the corner, told you can't belong, you're out, and he says, mm, I'm inviting you in. Will you listen? Will you hear? Will you participate? The pride of the religious leaders blinds them to blessing. We have our way. We have our system. We have our thing. It works for us. We like this. It builds us up. Their arrogance, selfishness, pride, name all of that, blinds them to the whole idea of blessing being dynamic. So then Jesus says, well, your leadership is going to have to end now, and that system is dried up, and it will be no more. In the book of Revelation, to church after church, Jesus says, here's what I have for you. Hey, church, this is what you're doing well. And here's what I have against you. Here's where you've lost the plot. And then what we see over and over is this in Revelation 2, 5. This is a picture of that. Jesus says, if you do not repent, that is, if you do not turn from that way, turn from it and come back to God, return to God, or turn toward God, I will come and remove your lampstand, your menorah is the word there, from its place. That, the lampstand, the menorah, is a picture, it's a symbol of the church. If you don't live as the church, then you don't get to be a church. Really simple. If you do not live this calling, then you don't get to be a church. Another symbol for this is wearing the clothes of justice and righteousness, which takes us back to the parable of that wedding feast. The scholars and commentators note that the wedding suit, we had that guy who doesn't have the wedding suit on, and he's like, hey, where's your wedding suit? And the guy's like, uh, right? And then he's like, well, then you can't be in here. And he throws him out. The wedding suit is the garment of justice and righteousness. 
Have you lived a life of justice and righteousness? Have you lived this out? No? Then it doesn't make sense that you would be at a party of justice and righteousness. This is a party celebrating justice and righteousness, which will be the only way forward in this party. So that's all that the Hebrew prophets have talked about over and over again. The nation, the people of Israel, to be clothed in justice and righteousness, but they refuse. Instead, they put on pride. They put on, we want to be in power for our own empire's sake, and that doesn't last long then, and it goes away. Their selfishness leads to their destruction. So the party is over. Their lamp is removed. This is what happens when the church doesn't live into the calling that God has given the church to do. Church, here, here's your invitation. Will you live to be a dynamic blessing for those around you? So it's, it's a communal challenge first, but it also goes to the personal, which raises the question for you and I today, what do you expend the vast majority of your energy on? Who is that good news for? Uh, and who else is that good news for? Think about this, this question. I told my boys and my family we were on, on the way here. We got in the vehicle, and I said to them, this question this morning is the biggest tension in my life, easily. What is it that I expend the most amount of my energy on when I have to sit there and reflect on that? And who is that good news for? And who else is that good news for? Because nothing makes me more when I'm exhausted, tired, or I've expended so much energy, and then I go, and that did nothing. It was, it was wasted. In a sense, it feels wasted. Or it was like, why did I give all my energy to that? Emotional energy. Emotional energy. Certainly time energy, if you will. Uh, effort, all of that. What, what, is, what am I giving my energy to? And what is that doing? What good news is that doing? Who? Who's experiencing that? And who else? Are you with me? Here's the thing. God's kingdom is advancing and the divine will get the last word. So we can either, church, participate with God in bringing it or we will be, it will be handed off to someone else. God will just say, okay, I'm going to give it to Larry then. If you don't want to participate in it, then I'm, I, it will win. It will go. This is what's happening. So who would like to participate with me sharing this moving forward? That leads me to think about a legend about the great evangelist D.L. Dwight L. Moody. Moody recalls a conversation he had with a friend named Henry Varley, who said to him, his friend said to him, the world has yet to see what God can do in and through and with and for and by one person completely given over to him. And then Moody says he remembered lying in his bed that night and he thought to himself, I will be that He just thought, I I'm going to be that guy who gives myself fully and completely over to this. But that legend actually makes me think of a, conversa a real conversation I had just in the last few weeks with a friend of mine who does not claim the Christian faith, yet he said to me, he hopes those who do claim the faith would live what they say they believe. And he said, he didn't want to be named, but he said I could quote him. So it's this. You know, I believe our world would be so much healthier, better. Our world would be better, much better, if Christians would simply live what they say they believe and claimed they are called to. I said to him, uh, that's brilliant, thank you. Can I have that? Because I need that reminder. I, I need that reminder. Thank you. Can I have that? And he goes, yeah, please just don't put my name on a screen or something. It's a gift. 
he, he actually, and, and, and the conversation continues, I really believe our world would change, be transformed if Christians like lived what they say they believe. He, he was hopeful and he was kind about it. Which made me think about how we help people find their way back to God and how do we love Walker well. The Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul here, wrote to the church in Colossae and he said this, Colossians 4, 5, and 6, Be wise, church, be wise when you engage with those outside the faith community. Make the most of every moment and every encounter. When you speak the word, speak it gracefully, as if seasoned with salt, so you will know how to respond to everyone rightly. Now, this is about the simplicity of the day-to-day -day living. Paul is not telling the church, I want you all to pack up and be global missionaries everywhere. He is saying to this little itty-bitty community that sits at the base of Mount Cadmus in the region we know as modern-day Turkey, this itty-bitty village, he says to them, when you go to the Agora, think farmer's market, when you go to the farmer's market to buy your fruits and vegetables... That conversation you're going to have is a brilliant opportunity. Pay attention. Hey, when you go to the market to sell your, um, your animal skins, or you're going to sell the fabric that you made, you're going to sell some tents at the market. Oh, hey, guys, when you're there, the conversations you're going to have are such an invitation and such an opportunity. Basic conversations you're going to have at the checkout at the grocery store when you're getting your coffee when you're driving and the window's down because it's warm out and you're in traffic and you what are caught singing a billy joel song yes or yelling and screaming and freaking out and yelling this traffic which by the way you're a part of it so you're that traffic if you're saying this traffic someone else is saying this traffic and you know who they're talking about us, because we're in it too. It's one of those weird things. Paul is reminding the church all of life, every little bit of it, the most simple conversations are the mission. Conversations and actions that are baked in love, grace, and good news. And good news is not a sales pitch or a formula. When we pay attention to the conversations Jesus had in his lifetime with a wildly diverse group of people, he did not have a stock answer. He didn't have a memorized speech or hand them a golden ticket to heaven. He didn't do that. He listened and he met each person right where they are, just as they are, and he asked questions, and he got to know them. What's your story? Why do you ask that question? Where are you coming from? Who are you? What are you doing? And in that interaction and in that conversation, he talked to them as them, for them. How are you then living as good news? What is in the way for you experiencing the full life? He asked a lot. What's in the way of you experiencing the full life? But he got to know them so he could help them identify that thing for them. Are you with me? So it's, it's holding curiosity in conversation to best learn who people are, what they may need, and how we can or speak good news in their lives. Friends, may your conversation and actions be baked in love, be baked in grace and good news. May you listen with focused attention. May you inquire with curiosity. May you share grace with clarity. And may you act with love in an abundance of goodness, of blessing that is dynamic, that is moving from you to others to all others. There's the alarm. Oh. Stan is on vacation uh, there in Italy, so I'm sorry. Uh, you're going to go to voicemail. Uh, I would love to uh, offer a word of prayer. Uh, then we'll reflect in song. Uh, we'll... Take a moment 
of blessing, benediction, and then we will have a smorgasbord of soup. Gracious God, I bless you that you invite us to the party over and over and over again, but not just invite us to the party. Uh, Holy One, you invite us in so many different ways. You nudge us, you wink at us, you put your arm around us, you display your love through your creation, you call to us through our neighbor, through our friend, through our spouse, through our kids, through our parents, you call to us in so many different voices and ways and avenues, and you're constantly saying, Welcome to the party. Would you like to come in and participate? You tell stories and then invite us to find ourselves in the stories to make a a decision on what we will do if we didn't hear all of those other ways and get all of those other nudges and winks and invites. You love us so well. I bless you, God, for the way you love us. You care for us. You meet us right where we are. You whisper to us. You pick us up, hold us. You forgive us. You offer us grace and mercy and kindness and goodness. You correct us when we are wandering in such a way that is going to be devastating for us and others. And you correct us all because you know this thing is all heading to a massive party and you want that party to be really, really, really loud and raucous and beautiful and celebratory and full of your kids. Gracious God, may we say yes to that invitation. All of the different invitations, maybe we pick one up. And our SVP. I bless you for the way you love us and invite us in. May we sit with that, sing with that, and let that ruminate now. And the church said, Amen. Mm-hmm.